The Colorado Avalanche are on the cusp of winning the Stanley Cup. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Your home of the Canucks and your home of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drance here. You can also read Drancer's work up at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Uh, the big thing, Transfer, that everyone is talking about coming out of last night, of course, is that I we have confirmed I'm not a prophet. I cannot see the future. No. My, my dream will not come to reality in Game 5 on Friday. Your dreams will forevermore remain private. That's right. <laughs> Which, you know what? I, I don't need the burden of that, so yeah. I'm fine. I don't, want, I don't want that in my well, life. And people don't want to hear more tales of me closing <laughs> tabs in my browser forever, uh, you know, ad infinitum. Let's talk about it. Let's so talk about okay. it. I want to talk about the game first. Okay, it was Then a great we'll game. get into the Too Many Men, because it was a great game. I loved it, yeah. It felt like the best version of this series that we've had so far, where I thought it was a very seesaw game. Both teams, you know, Tampa came out of the gates, fantastic. Uh, take the the really early one nothing lead. It felt like both teams had their moments. I thought, especially in the third period, it was a really it was such a cagey game, and it was kind of a seesaw. You know, Tampa was controlling play, then Colorado was controlling play, and it really felt like that punch counter punch that I think a lot of us were hoping for and expecting going into this series. It was it was a really fantastic game. Now you can get into obviously in overtime, and look, we're going to talk about too many men. Uh, don't worry. Well, yeah, sorry, but in the, overtime, Colorado takes over for, for sixty dominates. minutes. I at no point even considered that the Colorado Avalanche would win that game. To be totally honest with you, I was like, okay, this is the Avs, or this is the Lightning game plan. This is exactly it. This is what it looks like this when is this what series do. turns. And you know, Colorado's goals were fortunate. Both extremely fortunate bounces. And Tampa Bay, I thought, was the better team materially for 60 minutes. The the Avs had that big push in the second. But really what turned in the game, and that bothered me far more than the too many men, because we'll get to that shortly, but what bothered me far, far more was for 40 minutes, it felt like you had one standard for the game. And ahead of the third period, you had a totally different standard for the game. And all of a sudden, everything was being let go. And and there were two or three call, missed calls or non-calls that I thought were appalling, like that were clear, as obvious as it gets. And, you know, this is something we know happens in the playoffs. But what puts it into sharper relief for me is, first of all, this was the game being officiated by Kelly Sutherland. Uh, classic, a Vancouver guy, of course, but, but you know, I think not Canucks fans' favorite referee. And Wes McCauley, who's, you know, feels like he's been in on almost every controversial call this playoffs. Players love the guy. He's got the funny goal, uh, penalty calls, but it's like he was the ref of Game 7 Tampa-Toronto. You think through, like, all the games, all the moments we've been talking about, le- lengthy reviews in the second round, what have you. Feels like he's been in the center of all of it. It's been a it's been a tough go. Here's the thing about the too many men that bothers me is it's like if you decide midway through the second intermission that the standard's going to change ahead of the third, and then live in this fictional world where the referees aren't going to influence the outcome of the game. The folly of that, how absurd that is for a professional sports league to operate in a way that we all expect, like we're all familiar with it, so it doesn't offend us but it makes no sense. 
if you're going to operate like that, you're still probably going to end up having a hand on the outcome of the game, as illustrated by the Nazem Kadri goal, which was, in my view, a relatively obvious too many men on the ice call missed by the officials and the linesmen. It was especially jarring last night because, as you said, we're all used to the standard changing in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And look, at a certain point, you just kind of have to make your peace with that. When it changes in-game like that, from the second period to the third period, it can be really, really jarring. And there yeah. was probably there was maybe a five-minute stretch where I think there was you know, a tripping, an interference, a slashing, boarding, cross-checking, that all 100% get called in the regular season. Without a doubt, clear as day, that all went yeah. uncalled. Well, right? And that took away, like, Hedman had that one trip, and it happened pretty far from the net. Like, it happened at his own blue line. But he was accelerating through. If he beats a legal check which is, you know, 50-50 because he's got a head of steam, the av- the Lightning are attacking in numbers. Like, that has to be a call. That has to be a call. Both for the entertainment, you know, side of wanting the game to be good, and it was last night despite this, but also from the fact that, like, that's a, that's a scoring chance negated by an illegal check. That has to be called. That has to be called. At least it's a chance at a chance. And the other thing that happens is, okay, so you're ignoring all of these calls which at least have an element of subjectivity to them, right? You know, even when we look at it and say, well, that's a trip as clear as day. Tripping is inherently a subjective thing. Then a penalty that happens that is objective, right? That there's no opinion. It's just either it is or it isn't. And the classic example is puck over the boards. Right. And then that happens and you have to call it and you've kind of defeated the whole purpose of putting the whistles away, right? Because right. now all of a sudden you've... A- you're like, well, we have to call this one, but oh wait, I guess we should have called those penalties that we ignored. Well, and then you get the now quick we're favoring make, one other, you and then you get the, get the quick, quick makeup call. call. Yeah, and it's ludicrous. And we all know the rhythms and the pattern of this. And in the regular season, how the trailing team starts to get calls, and you know how some teams hold the puck a ton and get no calls, and some teams consistently generate. The Avs are the number one team at it. Consistently generate just otherworldly penalty differential. I'm not. This is not a Tampa Bay Lightning sob story. They've benefited from a ton of calls over the years, over their runs through the playoffs. Like that's It takes that sometimes to win playoff games. They've won games where the whistles went away. They've won games where the whistles were omnipresent. And so this is not a team versus team thing. This is just a, you know, for me, the too many men call, it, it's one thing. And, and I want to get into it a little further. But the thing that bothered me most about the officiating was how the standard changed in game and how the whistles got put away late you know with an effort to preserve the sanctity of players battling it out together only for the game-winning goal to be drenched in controversy at the end of it which just illustrates how ridiculous this standard that we've all come to accept from the nhl is on to the too many men so i'll just say last word on that i'm almost at the point where i would prefer it if the nhl just came out and said Here's what the standard's going to be in the playoffs. It's going to be different. We're going to change the rules. We're going to call things differently. Here's what it's going to be. And then try to get consistent to that standard. And they say that. They do They do come out and say it to some extent. And, and Bettman will say, you know, that's what the players want. Yes. And stuff like that. And, I, you know, I'm sure that's true. But I'm also sure that the players don't want the standard to switch in-game. Yeah. That's the problem. Because I, I, I do have some sympathy for the this is how the players want it. The players set the standard. I, I have some sympathy for that argument. And I get there's a romanticism to the idea of, oh, it gets so much tougher in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I don't have a problem with that. But you also want to have some degree of consistency, especially especially between periods uh, in a game. And again, just because it's a close game in the third period, 
I don't think the whistles need to go away completely. On to the too many men call, which too happens, many. and you know, no one really sees it, or at least in public discussion in real time as the goal is happening. And then there's the John NHL Coop- shift report. Cooper sets it up. John Cooper sets it up. Here's my thing. So was it too many men? Yep. Yep. Definitely. It was definitely too many men. But and maybe if I'm a Tampa Bay Lightning fan, obviously I probably have a completely different perspective on this. But just purely as Could you imagine a- this happened to the Canucks down three one oh in the gosh. Stanley Cup final? Oh my gosh. Could you imagine? I mean, you can because it sure feels can. pretty connected. I sure can. Purely my reaction as a fan of the sport, as a fan of the NHL, my kind of framework for how big a how big a deal is this missed call? The question I ask is: Did it spoil my enjoyment of the game? Did it leave no. a bad taste in my mouth? And the answer is answer. The answer is no. for me is no. Great game, great ending. Fantastic ending, fantastic goal, fantastic effort by a player returning, playing his first game uh, back from injury in Nazem Kadri. That's awesome. Yeah, it was I poetic. Think, it was romantic. We didn't see the puck yeah. go in. It was it was a wild sequence. It was a memorable, classic ending. And then I turned off the TV and went to walk my dog and thought, I really enjoyed that game. And then I came home and I looked at the things online and saw all the Zapruder film break- breakdowns of whether it was too many men or not. And here's the thing. Like, the obvious solution is to review every goal. Every goal gets reviewed. That's a standard that exists in the NFL, uh, that exists in soccer, right? It's not a ridiculous thing to suggest could be brought to the NHL, and yet you really want a product where Nazem Kadri scores that goal, and then it's like, wait, let's see if it counts, and everyone chills, and they watch the video eight times, and they see the too many men, and then they're like, nope. Play on. And it's like, really? That would obscure what was a phenomenally enjoyable... Like, more review is not the answer. In fact, less review is desperately needed. And I think if you're going to be annoyed by the length of video reviews, the length of time they take, the way that it disrupts the flow of the game, I think you have to accept some moments like this will happen. There will be a human error component. And I think we should just accept that. Like, I really think that's a far better solution than bogging the the viewing product down to a standard of frame-by-frame perfection that makes no sense and, ba- and and basically has no relationship with the actual game itself. Here, here Just yeah. one more thing for me. With regard to... Um, with regard to that, too many men as a general concept, right? One thing I learned in the bubble was that teams call too many men on the ice against each other on... A ridiculous amount of line changes. Almost every line change. This is what this is what if you play in an empty arena, an NHL playoff game sounds like during a line change. Oh ref! Oh hey! Oh look! Oh, that's what it sounds like. That's what every line change in the NHL playoff sounds like. If you can hear not the sounds of the broadcast, but the sounds of just the bench, like that's what it sounds like. Every team calls too many men on the um, too many men on the ice against their opponents on nearly every high-stakes line change. And here's the thing. Some of the times they're right. Like, at least once or twice a period, you could be like, oh, that's a missed one. That's a missed one right there. That's a missed one right there. It's part of the reason why when when people were absurdly saying that this team had a too-many-men-on-the-ice penalty problem uh, under the last coaching staff, even though the rate at which they took those penalties was, in fact, lower in the first 25 games than it was over the latter ones, it was like, guys, this is a completely random penalty. It's a completely random happenstance that it gets called. It could be called at least twice a game. Yeah. So I can't get too worked up 
over them missing it, even if it was a particularly egregious one because the key pass was made to the guy who was touch who touched the puck too early. Like it was Kadri in particular who was early. So for him to score, I get it. It's going. I think you have to accept the human error, and I think you have to accept that there are so many instances where this could be a call that it's just a random thing. It's supposed to catch when a team really screws up and has six guys on the ice. I, you know, the Avs touched it too early. They went too early. It wasn't that. It wasn't at that level. And so, I, you know, for me, not nearly as bad as the changing standard mid game. I definitely think part of what helps it not leave a bad taste in your mouth is that Colorado was absolutely dominating <laughs> in overtime. So it's not as if it's hard to sit here and be like, oh, Tampa got robbed. Like, well, they were probably going to lose anyways. Yeah. There's a good chance Colorado was going to score. They have in the, the next O'Connor five breakaway. Anyways. They have the Byram post. They have that first line shift that just was outrageous right before Kadri came the other way and scored. That was a terrifying display of power. Like, it felt like the Colorado Avalanche, like, um, you know, a predator when they unfurl and make themselves larger. Like, that's what it felt like. It was like they were stunting on their prey. Um, uh, and no one wants to pick a fight yeah, Tampa with was holding on for dear life before the goal. Yeah, uh, Nick in were. South Surrey. And by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in. Nick in South Surrey says, too many men is the same as holding in the NFL. And one of the great uh, complaints and laments of NFL fans, of course, is you could call holding on every play, which is probably true. And the reason you will never, ever see the NFL adopt video review for holding, because then you'd be looking you know, in such minute detail at every potential play to try to find it. And I feel I, the same about pass interference. Yeah, well, they've, I mean, they've had their struggles trying to figure out what I, the I heck still, to do with I pass interference. Think, I still think the pass interference call against that Bengals linebacker on the goal line stand, which gave the you know Rams a fresh set of downs in the Super Bowl, was appalling, and not just because it cost me the under. <laughs> you know that was the real reason, though. yeah, hundred percent. The other thing is, um, and, you know, just to your point about, do we really want to delay? the celebration when a, a big-time goal like that is scored. And obviously there was a, a temporarily delayed celebration last night because it was such a weird goal and no one knew where the puck was. But the moment that actually immediately popped into my mind when you said that uh, is Kevin BX's goal in Game 5 of the Western Conference Final. Because there would have been a review on that because nobody knew where the puck was. And right. they would have reviewed it to see if it, had, if it had actually gone out of play like most of the people on the ice thought it was. And yeah. instead of this... Oh my gosh, this celebration when people see that it's in the net With confetti and on the ice and everyone and tripping and on it, <laughs> hugging and jumping up and down like these iconic moments. Yeah. For Canucks fans, you would have had Oh, the play is under well, review. Not to mention, I don't even know if you could have restarted the game because of the confetti. Yeah. You literally would have had a 15 minute delay in that instance. So, no, I mean, and that's just a moment. That's just one moment that, you know, obviously that stands out for Canucks fans that jumps to mind that you you're taking away if you add if you make that the standard for ultimately no reason. This is also what makes the overtime goals that feel like they're etched in stone the moment they happen. You're like, oh, right, that's history, like the Burroughs goal versus the Bieksa goal. That's what makes so many playoff overtime goals. You know, you think about Patrick Kane against Michael Layton. You think about the Bieksa stanchion goal. O- over the years, there's so many overtime goals that you're like, what? What just happened? What happened? What you on know? earth happened? And so when you get the, like, no-doubter, the no-doubter, like, great play, Gretzky from the blue line, Kevin Bieksa catches the puck. When you get one of those, you got to really savor it, especially when it's your team involved. Yeah, no doubt about that. And, you know, to the point, uh, to, and to Nick's point, the texture about it happens, uh, too many men is like holding, it happens so often. So, okay, let's say you did go to a review standard where you can look at it and see if there's too many men. Goals aren't the only really important plays in hockey, right? I mean, what if there's a line change like that happens and Kadri gets on the ice 
And he, and now, <laughs> granted, you have to imagine a scenario where the refs would call a penalty, but he draws a penalty, right? And Tampa Bay or Colorado goes on the power play and scores there. Well, that's not going to be reviewable in that standard, but it's still something that could really have a major impact yeah. on the game. You're never going to be able to eliminate all of those missed calls, all of those kind of judgment calls right. at the speed of the game. Which, which goes back to the, the core point for me in, in talking about the officiating after that game. For me, you have to accept some human error on things like, um, too many, too many men. You have to accept some human error there. However, the designed human flaw that is, let's not call penalties, let's not try to impact the game when the stakes ratchet up in the playoffs, that's a fiction. You're always affecting the game. Call the rule book. Period. Call the rule book. Uh, lots of great texts coming in. 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dunbar Lumber. Dot com. Locutus of Borg says, Miss calls are part of the juice of the sport. We all get to scream and go insane and are forced to confront the random injustice of life in the context of something totally meaningless but fun. I think it's great. Another one comes in, uh, Minor Matt in Abbotsford, who says, Is anyone really surprised that a too many men on the ice penalty wasn't called in a Stanley Cup final overtime? I would have been shocked. If they did call it, that's from Minor Matt and Abbotsford. I think that's a decent point yep. as well. Uh, you just you're not expecting to see uh, many penalties called in that situation. And this one from Chad, who says it kills me to tell Drance that he's right, but you can't do replay on everything. You can't take the human element out of the game. That's what makes sports so great. And for me, it's not so much about preserving the human element as it is. Just don't slow down the product. Keep keeping anymore. it going. Yeah, just keep keep the wheels moving. Let's not slow it down yeah. every just single like, time. Bring, just bring me a pitch clock. Bring me a pitch clock, remove video review, or limit, like, put a, put, a, put a pitch clock on video review, let people watch it once, stop this frame-by-frame frame analysis of plays. It's all, it's all, like, with the best intentions, we've gone way too far. Way too far. It's very view. understandable. I completely get the impulse of, we gotta get the calls right. Completely understand yeah. it. It just gets to a point where it impacts the viewer experience. Just on the pitch clock. Biggest revelation for me of going to games at the Nat this year is, is the pitch clock. Oh, I love it. Oh, it's fantastic. It's so good. Keeps the game moving. It's zippy. It's fantastic. Well, and I saw I saw a pitcher having a meltdown in, in the ninth inning, and the pitch clock just added this, like, pressure point to it. Like, he didn't have time to gather himself. And I think you've seen, like, wild swings late throughout this Vancouver Canadian season, whether they're coming back or whether they're struggling to hold leads. Like, I'm, I, I honestly, having watched it, having watched the – TikTok, TikTok adds stress to an already stressful situation. I really felt like it was actually something that might even add an element of drama, an element of that sort of late game um, intrigue. It's great. I'm a big fan. It 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 gives the game a real sense of rhythm. Yeah, you know, it's it's like it's it's like you're watching Mark Burley pitch every game. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I used to I used to specifically buy Jay's tickets to go see Mark Burley games, and then I'd make plans for like two and a half hours later with confidence. Be like, oh, yeah, I can catch that yeah. movie. I can go to that concert. We can hit the 7 o'clock game and go to the concert. No problem. Mark Burley would uh, get games done occasionally under two hours yeah. even, which is pretty remarkable in Major League Baseball amazing. Uh, in his era. Anyways, back to the Stanley Cup final. So we talked about too many men, but obviously the big takeaway on the ice is Colorado's up 3-1. They're going back home for game five. Don't count Friday. Tampa out. Last one. Don't count Tampa out. I'm so close to counting Tampa out. No, it's really... Man, they, they got to win three in a row, two in Colorado. No, no, no. They do have to win three in a row, but they really have to win one, and then another one, and then they're and then in game another seven. one. <laughs> yeah, but they're, and then they're in game seven. I mean, at the end of the day, if they can survive in Colorado, right, if they can eke out a win, which they were on the verge of doing. I mean, 
you know, they were for, for for 55 minutes anyway, with the exception of a stretch in the second, they were the better team last night. Like, it's a deflection, two deflection goals that were basically unintentional. One of them, the scoring has to be changed. The other is an, a, an absurd deflection off of McKinnon's skate. The Avs are so impressive, but the Tampa Bay Lightning found ways to limit the extent to which we noticed Colorado's prime speed advantage until overtime. Until overtime. Until overtime. So, I mean, if if the Tampa Bay, like, we're still going to get a Darcy Kemper game. We're still going to get a Darcy Kemper game, and I still think we're going to get a Vasilevsky game, like a pure Vasilevsky game. So, I'm not counting the lightning out, and I encourage our listeners not to do the, well, it's over now thing. Like, it's really not, especially against this lightning club. I understand that. I understand don't count out Tampa. The thing that really concerns me is the difference in play we saw in the two games in Colorado versus the two games in Tampa. And now they have two more games in Colorado yep. to try to close it out. Oh, no question. That's the biggest factor. It's a big hill to climb. Can't, Tampa figured it out, and they hung with them in Tampa. It's a very different question, I think, to do it in Colorado, and that's the biggest point of concern yeah. for me. I also just... I don't know. We'll see what happens with Cernak. You know, it just... It, it feels cons- like it's adding up. Yeah. It, there's, it gets to a certain point where, okay, hey, they can do it without Braden Point, but you start getting nicks on key guys and more key guys out of the lineup, and are, are, are you going to run out of gas at a certain point? Is the bubble going to kind of burst? Uh, it, I mean, it's impossible to imagine that they're not out of gas already, and yet, very much, very much. If they can win one, if they can win one and bring it back to Tampa Bay, you know, they, there's going to be, like... The Colorado Avalanche now have three chances to eliminate them and win the Cup, and they're probably going to do it. 95% likely. But, you know, I, I strongly think the way that this series has trended, particularly the last two games, provides you with something of a roadmap for how Tampa Bay can limit their offense. I mean, think about it this way. They scored five goals across the two games in Tampa Bay, games three and four, after absolutely bludgeoning them for 11 in game one and two. Like, this is what Tampa does. We've seen them do this. They learn, they adapt, they limit what teams are able to generate against them. Like, I won't be stunned by a 3-1 result in Tampa's favor in game five. I really won't. I so think- I just I just want to put that out there. There's It's always tempting in the playoffs to think that the result of the last game it carries over, and it doesn't necessarily. This isn't... Hockey is a different sport where momentum really can change late in the series. We'll obviously get into it more tomorrow uh, on game day ahead of game five. I will just say it feels like the first five minutes of that game are going to be absolutely crucial. If Tampa can kind of get Colorado stuck in the mud right out of the gate and get them playing their game that they successfully played in Tampa. All right, then it's game on. If Colorado just comes out flying with the, you know, we're going to finish this right now attitude, I think it could snowball from so there. So I would, I, would, I would say, I mean, Colorado had a, had a lead very early if, after both games one and two, right? In both games one and two, they had a lead very early. Uh, I think you have to expect that the team on the verge of the cup final is going to come out with adrenaline pumping and their families all in town and parade plans drawn up and t- absolutely land a haymaker right out of the gate. For me, it's not so much as can Tampa get them stuck in the mud right away. It's can Tampa not get washed away in the first five to ten. If can they, they survive can, the haymaker yeah, out if of they, the game? If they can, if they can take that punch, if they don't have a glass jaw, then then there's a then there's a route to them winning. Uh, a listener hit us up yesterday in the six fifty six fifty Dunbar Lumber text line with a really interesting question about Jack Rathbone, who I think is a pretty fascinating 
figure for the Vancouver Canucks going into next year that we haven't talked about a lot. So we're going to dive into that in the next segment. And hey, we're always open to questions here. So if you, you've got any thoughts or questions uh, about the Canucks offseason that you want to an- us to answer, hit us up 650-650. We'll talk about that, a little bit about some of the news around the league as well. Don't forget also, uh, subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and, and review. We'll be back with more. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. And yesterday... Late in the show, we got what I thought was a very interesting question from Ryan in Terrace into the Dunbar Lumber text line. And Ryan says, uh, hey guys, my Canucks group chat has been going off today about what the best thing is for the Canucks to do with Jack Rathbone. With Hughes, he will never be a power play one guy. And with OEL and Myers, is he even a power play two guy on this team? Uh, That being said, wouldn't it be better to monetize him and get something that fits the makeup of this team better. That's from Ryan in Terrace. And first of all, Ryan, I mean, feel free to keep feeding us uh, talking points from your uh, your group chat. Uh, I love that. Just, yeah, hundred percent. Good good entry points into discussion. So Big, also, there's nothing, keep us updated. There's nothing more hockey these days than a group chat. Yes, you know, yes. like every team has several of them going at any given moment. You've got the management group chat. You've got the, you know, like hockey scouts group chat. You've got the group chat with like the three colleagues who work together, who like think about things the same way to make fun of their other colleagues. You've got, you know, various player. um, I know of no such thing. (laughs) Everyone has those. Everyone. So shout out to the group chat. (laughs) Shout out to the group chat. It's a, it's such a key part of life and hockey. So the Rathbone question is really, really fascinating. And, you know, I think there's probably uh, a kind of gut reaction to a lot of Canucks fans when you hear the idea of trading Jack Rathbone. The gut reaction is, no, why on earth would you do that, right? And I get that because you look at it, what have they stressed so much, uh, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvian, since they took over? We need to add to the prospect pipeline. We've talked so much about how thin the Canucks prospect pipeline is. They need young cost-controlled or at least under-team control players with upside, especially on the blue line like Jack Rathbone. But Ryan makes a really good point about Rathbone's position on the depth chart going into this year in particular, right? And we know Quinn Hughes is going to be the foundational piece on the blue line for this team for years to come. That's, you know, locked up, the performance, all of it. He is that guy. OEL certainly doesn't seem like he's going anywhere, and he plays on the left side because of his contract, so you got to deal with that. And then, look, could Jack Rathbone beat out Travis Dermott for a spot on the left side? Yeah, sure, of course he could, but that's still another piece. And then I think the overall interesting question that Ryan brings up is... But can he beat out Travis Dermott and be how much better? Sure. You know, like, do how much better can he even be, considering that Dermott's played, what, 300-plus NHL games, and Rathbone's a year and a bit younger than him? And like, that's it's not the, like they're a big. It's not like Rathbone's nineteen. Well, that's and the thing. Dermot's twenty three. Jack Rathbone was drafted in, in twenty seventeen, right? He's yeah. twenty three years old, so he's not exactly young for a prospect. He's in a very. He's a he, mature prospect. He put up exceptional numbers in the AHL last year, right? Performed really, really well there. I like Jack Rathbone as a player a lot. I think he has a lot of upside, but it's also important to note he's twenty three. This is a really kind of crucial stage 
of his career. And I understand from that perspective the idea of at least exploring a trade. Because, again, even if he does win ice time away from Travis Dermott this year, right, and and kind of establish himself as that number three guy down the left side for the Canucks, the question about what kind of role he's going to play in the future remains. Okay, great, you're the number three guy. Are you ever going to be more than that here, given that Quinn Hughes and Oliver Ekman Larson are kind of locked in on those first two spots? So you know how I like to get uh, free economics on on hockey concepts. Like that's like my favorite sure. thing to do. So there's a there's a thing called the endowment effect. Are you familiar with the endowment effect? Yeah, you always value what you already have more than the the potential thing over there. Right, and it's a thing that I genuinely think causes NHL teams to be inefficient in how they hold. Uh, assets below the NHL level, right? Like we very rarely see the prospect for prospect trade when both guys are still intriguing at all to the public or to the industry as a whole. You you, you know, you'll see the like true AHLer traded for the true AHLer, but you won't generally see that player dealt until he's run out of room to prove himself unless there's significant red flags in which point, at which point you know that the team trading him has given up on him, right? There's not a lot of successful guys drafting the first or second round, for example, that get dealt in the first two years. And one of the reasons that teams are like this and behave like this is like Mason Marchment for Dennis Mulligan, right? And and it's interesting because at the time that that deal happened, right, like the Panthers were looking to get a pick <laughs> to get off of Mulligan. Instead, they ended up settling for a guy who was seen as an AHL winger who could at least add toughness to their AHL team. Well, fast forward three years later, Mason Marchment's like, they're bronzing a statue of him outside the ACC as the one that got away. Or, sorry, it's called the Scotiabank Arena. Yes. And the, you know, and and Marchment's a 50-point guy who's about to cash in as an unrestricted free agent. Well, crazy things happen in hockey. And teams are so scared of being burned that you you regular you regularly oh my goodness you regularly see them hold on to I had your mouth trick there by the way they regular you regularly see them hold on to prospects far beyond their expiry date in terms of actually having value and and look you don't have to look too far in the past of Canucks history to see these like there were moments where Cole Lind and Jonah Gajevich would have been big value guys. And instead, the Canucks lose one on waivers and one in expansion. Zero value created from a pair of second-round picks who, yeah, they didn't hit, but they also could have been monetized for at least comparable value at some point along the way. Adam Gaudet's another really good example. Like, there were fifth-round pick, you know, nothing of value really in a fifth-round pick. And then Hobie Baker winner, tons of value, right? 40-point, 23-year-old center, tons of value, now he, you know, is a waiver claim guy, right? Like, it, it's so fast. The attrition rate of value for prospects can go so fast. And so you get to Rathbone. Let's let's zero in now on the specific. Rathbone is, I think he's 23. Yeah. And he's a phenomenal American League defenseman. Like, he can drive an offense for an American. He can be the best player on a really good American League team. And that's that's special to be able to do that at 23. Like, really special, especially from the back. You can look and say, well, he hasn't done anything at the NHL level. That's absolutely true. He's got to prove it there. He checked every box you wanted him to check at the HL. Like, he, he showed you everything you could expect at the HL level last With year. With the exception of being used late in games or in a matchup role. And that looms large. That looms very large if you're trying to figure out whether or not he has a big-time NHL future. So let's let's 
keep focusing on Rathbone. Rathbone has the production to suggest that he will be an impactful NHL player. He also has a dynamic speed element to his game that's going to earn him a significant shot at some point in this league for somebody. And yet, on this Canucks team, with the way that they're built, with the way that you've got Oliver Ekman, Larson, and Hughes locked up forever, basically, on the left side, where you've got a 25-year-old guy who's a RFA this up, upcoming summer and is cost-controlled for a couple of years, with the fact that you know J- Brad Hunt was a totally good third-pair fill-in for you. Um, how good does Rathbone have to be, at the end of the day, really, to bust into this lineup, to be a core piece for this team. like He has to be really, really good. He has to be really, really good. And if you're going to be that good, you're not going to play in the AHL at the age of 23. Like this upcoming season, if he's in the American League, the industry begins to think that he's a guy who's not... Who's not going to make it. ...going to make it, or at least not going to make it as more than a, you know... Uh, offensive version of Chad Rudawheel or a Kevin Connaughton or one of those quad A guys, one of those guys who's like a bona fide NHL player, a Brad Hunt, right? Like Brad Hunt's a point per game player in the in the American League. The last time he played in the American League, he was the leading scorer in the league, not among defensemen, in the league when he was called up for the last time, right? Like that's, you know, you, you think about Brad Hunt and you're, our, our listeners are like, hey, I liked him. He was easy to root for, but you're not excited about him. You're not devastated to hear that the Canucks might not re-sign him in the offseason. You're like, oh, I thought he was a good fit at the right dollar figure. And that's the right way to look at Brad Hunt. He's a really good, he's an NHL caliber defenseman. Jack Rathbone's not at that level right now, right now. And yet, in terms of trade value and how he'd be valued right now, he'd still have that prospect sheen. Well, if he comes to training camp and doesn't make the roster, that prospect sheen is gone, and he begins to be valued the way a Brad Hunt is around the NHL, albeit 10 years younger and still with some lingering potential. So in assessing this, the Canucks really have to be careful, in my view, about calculating the risk versus the reward. If you think Rathbone can be a top four guy, well, then you sit on it. Then you, then you, then it's a hold. He's an RFA this summer. It's not going to be a complicated negotiation. Um, you know, you, you sign him, you do, you do the Ole Levy, right? You offer him a league minimum deal, but it's guaranteed one way. Right there, that's easy because otherwise, you know, his qualifying offer is only a two-way. You you get the guy, you grind him that way, and those deals get done two weeks after the market opens. By the end of July, you could probably get that deal done, if history is any indicator. And you know, you you you'd let him sort of prove it, but you have to know in assessing this that the risk is not that Rathbone has like two more years. You he's tons of time to figure this out. No, in terms of his valuation, in terms of what he means to you, his value as a trade piece now there's a real chance that it's the highest that it'll ever be unless he comes off, knocks the socks off of the Canucks, makes the team, and then plays really well, can play a regular shift and be productive. Like, all of that needs to happen for his value just to hold steady. And that's a tough call to have to make, but I do think there's some urgency for the club to make it now, just from a value perspective. So my whenever you start talking about trading players, my kind of baseline starting point is... I'm very much a no one is truly untouchable kind of guy. Like I don't have a problem with listening and exploring the idea of trading virtually any player. So I, I don't have of a course. I don't intrinsically have a problem with exploring the idea of trading Jack Rathbone. Maybe there's a guy a couple of years younger who has equal upside. Maybe there's a guy who's already established that can slot into your lineup in a different role. Right? Whatever the case is, if there's if there's a trade out there that makes sense and you're not sacrificing a ton of upside, 
I don't truly have a problem with it. I would want to really exhaust, just kind of internally, right, from the front office perspective, make sure you've considered every possible scenario where he could be on your team and contribute this year, right? Not just say, ah, well, we've got Quinn Hughes and OEL. I guess we have to move this guy. Like, try to at least exercise some sort of creative problem solving. Maybe that moves means moving somebody over to the right side, right? To kind of make room for him on the roster. Well, and there's two options. I mean, OEL uh, and Dermot, Dermot can both move to the right side with ease. So, I mean, that's very much something to consider. Something, something to consider. But I just think you have to be... I think you have to be a risk averse in this situation. And, and here's one last thing I want to bring up. When you have organization, I don't know why I can't speak today, bud. When you it's have organizational change, Dunbar lumber text line, when you have organizational change, sorry, I was just resetting myself. It would be a good vocal warm up, actually. <laughs> yeah. Just not to interrupt your train of thought. Dunbar lumber, Dunbar lumber. I E I O U, Dunbar lumber. Anyway. With organizational change, new management, new hockey operations, leadership coming in, you often get, and I'm sure there's a better word for this, but I just sort of see it as like my guy, your guy. It's the my guy, your guy effect, right? And within hockey environments, within hockey operations environments, there's players that a team is super invested in, often because of a personal connection or a personal stake that a general manager or executive or a scout or a player development guy who's really vouched for them and pounded the table for that player over the years has in a certain roster player or a player in the organizational pipeline. And, and when you have organizational change, sometimes, in fact, almost always, the skin in the game that various executives have, the attachment to certain players or certain prospects disappears overnight, evaporates, and there's a fresh set of eyes evaluating players. It's why, you know... All the, overnight, Jonathan Myrenberg became considered the Canucks' best defenseman prospect because the new organization's like, that guy has a shot, and that changes how he's talked about in the market, as it should. Linus Carlson was on his way out of this organization. Management changes, he signed. The club's like advertising, like, come see Linus Carlson yeah. at the Penticton Young Stars tournament, right? Like, it completely changes. And we saw this with the Benning era, of course, because we saw Frank Corrado lost on waivers, right? We saw... The club uh, trade um, Hunter, Hunter Shakarik for for that was for Granlund. Uh, Granlund, Marcus Granlund, and then we also saw the opposite where they bid on a lot of these players that teams were on the verge of getting rid of and and sort of monetize them. And, and a good example actually is the Dermot trade, but another good example would be um, the Canucks acquisition of Sven Berchi for a second. Emerson Idiom, go down the list. The Canucks have made a million trades like Derek Pouliot, Lyndon Vay. Yeah, I mean we you know. You, we all know the names. We, we can all go, know the we names. We can go down the list, or you can check the KHL's top scorers this past season. Your call. In terms of, in terms of that side of it, it wouldn't be a huge shock to see the Canucks consider moving off some of the prospects in the pipeline for future assets or young players as the organization looks to put their own stamp on what's incoming. And we've already sort of seen this. We've seen our steep Baines. We've seen the club sign a couple of unsigned draft picks. We've heard them talk about how they need a depth of talent, lineup balance, more talent coming. And part of that process could involve moving some pieces around the chessboard. And, and Jack Rathbone's definitely one to watch because there's a fair bit of value, I think, tied up there. There's still some people around the NHL who see the dynamic sp- skating and the production and say, come on, like this guy's worth taking a bet on. And he is. Very much like I'm a big Jack Rathbone fan. In terms of 
other pieces that the Canucks have, though, that I, I wouldn't be shocked to see them consider or th- who I think they should consider. Uh, Mike DiPietro, you know, you've you've now signed Spencer Martin to a two-year deal. The DiPietro wouldn't surprise me at all this Ar- offseason if that happens. Arthur Silovs is clearly the apple of the Canucks goaltending development apparatus's eye. And, you know, you're going to want a third goalie. You, you're going to want a veteran third goalie. Like, you're going to want one of those Andrew Hammond, Dustin Tokarski types to come up because they're probably going to give you games. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. They're probably going to give you games. That makes a lot more sense. As um, Silovs and that guy that you're describing, you know, veteran goalie X, makes a lot more sense as the Abbotsford duo than Silovs DiPietro does. 100%. So, so that's another one. And then, look, you gotta you got to think about Aiden McDonough. Now, McDonough's made clear that he intends to sign in Vancouver following his senior season at Northeastern, but you always have to keep in mind the risk factor that's involved. You can't just you can't just hear someone say something like you'd never do this in real life. Someone says something that's against their interest, they make you a promise, and you're like, okay, As, I will take you at your word, but I will prepare for you to not keep it. Well, especially a year in advance. It's one thing if you say, hey, when free agency opens in two weeks, I'm going to sign with you, right? right? Like that's a very different promise than next year I'm going to do it. The fact of the matter is that the closer you get to free agency, the more appealing it becomes. Always, always, 100% of the time. And for a player like McDonough, you play out your senior season at Northeastern. You've got Devon Levy returning, right? Like that's one of the reasons I think for optimism is it's not like Northeastern had a huge bunch of defectors. Like not like a bunch of their guys went off and signed. Like some of their guys graduated out. Uh, Colangelo to Montreal like there's some good players who left but for the most part the core group of that northeastern group that fell short this year and had national title aspirations they're all back including Devon Levy who's sort of the 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 key difference maker that they have so you can understand why you'd want to be part of that as captain if you're McDonough so I'm not I'm not trying to do the classic panic fuel Vancouver take (laughs) that's not the point here the point is to assess the risk factor if you're McDonough, you play this, you play out this college season. You withdraw prior from college prior to your class's graduation, but following your hockey season, and you are eligible to be a free agent UFA on August fifteenth. Well, that becomes pretty appealing. It's not going to be a straightforward exercise, typically speaking, if history is any indicator, to get a player in that circumstance under contract because the ability to choose your own shot, right to be wined and dined by teams and say, hey, I, I, you know, I really want to have a good shot of making the team. I'm going to pick a team with no wing depth. And maybe, you know, like there's a lot of sort of elements that go into making those decisions for a player. And that's another one that you have to look at, I think, this offseason too, because you can avoid the drama. You can do the, you know, Adam Fox monetize a guy. Now, I'm not saying that McDonough's ever going to be Adam Fox. There's a real chance that he's a uh, you know, an AHL top six forward or bottom six, bottom uh, line forward in the NHL or a quad A guy. But there there could still be value in him this summer that may evaporate within 12 months. And I think that's another situation that the club has to be mindful of considering the risk factors involved with August 15 free agents. The, the last thing I want to say about Rathbone is, and again, I'm open to exploring trade options for just about anyone. If there's a trade out there that makes sense, you think it improves your team. There's no reason to designate, especially a player in Jack Rathbone's position is untouchable. It would make me a little queasy to make that move because of your depth chart this year when we're there's a good chance we see the Colorado Avalanche and their style of hockey kind of ascend to supremacy in the NHL right now, and all of a sudden you're giving up on this, yeah, he's undersized, but he's a great skater, he's a puck mover, all of that. 
there's a very good chance we just start to see the market for those guys go through the roof I in the even, coming I years. Even, right, especially with Colorado winning. Exactly. But also, I don't think of Jack Rathbone as undersized. He's 5'10", 5'11". Sure. Like, he really, and he's not a generously listed 5'10", 5'11", where you meet the guy and you're like, oh, you're 5'8". Like, he's genuinely very close to six feet tall. Yeah. Um, that would make me nervous, right? And he plays, and he plays with some hunger in the belly. Sure, it would make you nervous, but if he could be part of a package that lands you a comparable or a younger right-handed defenseman or uh, you know a, a center prospect, is that something worth considering? I mean, I think it has to be. I think it has to be, particularly given the risk that his valuation now is the highest that it ever is and the chance that four or five months from now it's it's completely cratered. And by the way, I say all of this while being fully on board with rolling the dice on Jack Rathbone. He's exactly the type of person and player that I like to see a team gamble on. Well, and that's what I said about finding creative solutions, right? Whether it's moving somebody to the right side. I look at also how Tampa Bay uses their defensemen, and their three best guys, right, are Hedman, McDonough, Sergachev, down the left side. They still find a way to get all of the minutes. Now, different players, different situation, I understand that, but... I don't want to I don't want to just look at it and say Hughes and OEL are here. They play on the left side. There's no room for Jack Rathbone to get minutes. I guess we got to trade him. I think you have to explore other scenarios whether it's deployment, moving somebody to the right side, whatever it is because of the upside that he has. Now as you said, there's risk associated with that of course because maybe none of those creative solutions do work out. But I think he has the upside in him to justify exploring those different routes, right? Yeah, you're just out of time to figure it out, and you have to weigh that heavily, in my view, in deciding how to proceed this offseason. That is going to do it for us today. More good questions came in. Now, we'll try to get to some of them tomorrow. You can always hit us up, 650-650. It will be game day tomorrow, and we'll be on uh, an hour early at 11 to break it all down for you. The People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.